Dear We the People friends and listeners, I'm thrilled to share with you that this week, the National Constitution Center elected a new honorary chair. Justice Neil Gorsuch will succeed Vice President Joe Biden as the honorary chair of the National Constitution Center. We're so grateful to both Justice Gorsuch and Vice President Biden for working with us to advance our crucially important nonpartisan mission of promoting civics and civility, of which this We the People podcast is such a central part. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Today, we explore the question of constitutional crisis and whether the president's announced decision to resist all the subpoenas has created a conflict between the executive branch and Congress that might add up to a constitutional crisis or not. And joining us to discuss this crucially important constitutional question are two of America's most thoughtful commentators about the Constitution. Both have written uh, really illuminating stuff about uh, the broad and detailed questions uh, that we're going to be discussing. Keith Whittington is the Wilson Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University. He's the author of many works on American constitutional theory, the presidency, and Congress, including Constitutional Construction, Divided Powers, and Constitutional Meanings. He's currently working on a book about constitutional crises entitled Constitutional Crises, Real and Imagined. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and blogs for the Volokh Conspiracy. Keith, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. And Adam Liptak covers the Supreme Court and writes Sidebar, a column on legal developments for the New York Times. He practiced law for 14 years before joining the Times in 2002. He has taught courses on the Supreme Court and the First Amendment at law schools, including Yale and the University of Chicago, and is also a returning champion on the We the People podcast. Adam, it's wonderful to have you back. It's nice to be back. Keith, I can't wait to read your new book, Constitutional Crises, so I will begin with the obvious question. Uh, Chairman Nadler on the House Judiciary Committee has said we are in a constitutional crisis. Are we or not? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I think politicians can be uh, rather quick to want to uh, declare constitutional crises in part because they uh, think that that kind of rhetoric will um, – uh, help um, empower them and give them additional leverage, in this case, in negotiations uh, with the White House. Um, but the way I think about constitutional crises is um, to uh, think about whether or not the constitutional system as a whole is, is breaking down or whether or not important parts of it um, are, are breaking down and, and failing to um, operate. Um, there's no uh, – uh, meaningful term of constitutional crisis within American constitutional law. It doesn't reference anything very particular. It's often just a piece of political rhetoric. Um, but I think if we want to unpack that political rhetoric, the, the useful um, concepts behind it um, really go to questions about whether or not the constitutional order is, is failing. Adam, do you agree with Keith's definition of a constitutional crisis, uh, a situation in which the constitutional system as a whole is failing? Or is that too rigorous? Would you have a different definition? And what does history tell us about whether or not we're in a constitutional crisis? No, that feels right to me. Um, so long as each branch continues to have tools to try to advance its interests, the Constitution does contemplate skirmishes and tussles and so on. And short of a, a complete breakdown, uh, I wouldn't be throwing around terms like constitutional crisis either. And it's hard to know exactly what would be one, um, but I guess the one I could surely imagine is a direct command from the Supreme Court to say the president uh, that is disobeyed. At that point, uh, I'm confident we're in a constitutional crisis, but so long as there are simply maximalist assertions from both sides, with the House seeking all kinds of information from President Trump and President Trump declaring a wholesale refusal to uh, provide the information, uh, that that's novel, it seems to me. But I don't know that it rises yet to the level of a crisis. Well, let's delve into the definition of crisis a bit. Keith, in your articles, and um, 
you'll develop this in your forthcoming book, you argue for two different types of constitutional crises, operational crises and crises of fidelity. Operational crises, you say, arise when important political disputes cannot be resolved within ex the existing constitutional framework. That's when the system is breaking down. And crises of constitutional fidelity arise when important actors threaten to become no longer willing to abide by existing constitutional arrangements or systematically contradict constitutional prescriptions. That would be the president refusing to leave office or openly to defy the Supreme Court. Uh, can you give us examples of both of those crises in history and when in history have we seen constitutional crises? So fortunately, we don't see them very often uh, in American constitutional history. In part, we've uh, developed various kinds of tools and expectations and practices and norms to um, avoid uh, running into things that could be uh, potential uh, crises. Um, so uh, notably, for example, we're very creative about how to interpret the Constitution, and that um, helps in uh, being able to pull um, political reformers and political activists um, into the constitutional tent and have them argue about how we ought to interpret the Constitution rather than imagine that we have to um, abandon the Constitution. We should simply ignore um, parts of the Constitution. So um, historically, uh, the Garrisonians, who were an important component of the anti-slavery uh, movement, took the view that the Constitution Constitution was fundamentally evil uh, because of the compromises that had been made with uh, slavery. And as a consequence, uh, they really uh, encouraged the view that um, political actors should um, violate the Constitution, ignore the Constitution, and we should break up the Union um, in response to uh, those compromises with evil. Um, the more successful anti-slavery movement at the end of the day was represented by people like Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, um, who embraced the idea that the Constitution was compatible with anti-slavery goals. And as a consequence, you didn't have to break faith with the Constitution itself in order to um, advance those anti-slavery goals within the context of the Constitution. Um, so one way in which we avoid these things is, is by uh, being creative about how we, how we interpret the Constitution. Um, but I think these uh, potential crises of operation um, are also uh, – uh, implicit in various aspects of the American Constitution, but in particular uh, in this media context, uh, in the context of separation of powers, um, both Congress and the president have available to them a variety of constitutional tools they can use to try to get their way. Um, and there are points at which it's possible for them to come to loggerheads and just uh, reach an impasse um, that they can't um, get past, um, uh, even uh, operating within the terms of the Constitution itself. Um, so, for example, imagine um, a Senate that was implacably opposed to a new presidency uh, simply refusing to confirm any cabinet officials uh, for uh, the new president. So, so the president's incapable of creating a government uh, around him to help guide uh, the executive branch. Um, there's no easy path forward under those kind of situations. And we avoid uh, that kind of impasse uh, in part out of a set of historical practices that encourage us to compromise, uh, be more moderate about how we use our uh, power um, and not to try to make maximalist claims um, that will lead to um, deadlocks, um, but instead find, try to find ways of moving forward within the constitutional system. The Garrisonian example is very salient, and listeners know I talked last week about this really exciting new gallery on the Civil War and Reconstruction and its constitutional legacy that we just opened at the Constitution Center. And Keith, your definition suggests that we really had very few actual constitutional crises in American history, maybe the Constitutional Convention itself following the American Revolution, the Civil War, I guess you could argue about the New Deal and the Civil Rights Movement, but it's a small set. So, Adam, given the fact that you both agree that we're not currently in one, why don't we compare the president's current claims, I'm going to resist all the subpoenas, with, I suppose, the nearest uh, historical analog, the, the, the Nixon era. Um, is the president's claim more extreme than the ones taken by President Nixon? And so far, is the clash we're seeing between the president and Congress more extreme than the clash between the Nixon era president and Congress or not? Well, the Nixon-era clash ends up in court and not because of a confrontation with Congress directly but because of a criminal inquiry. And there the Supreme Court says – and what, what, one interesting point, Jeff, is that the claims of each side are nowhere to be found in the words of the Constitution. That is, Congress uh, says it has uh, authority to seek information from the executive branch and others. It has an investigative power. You can infer that from the text of the Constitution, but it's not in the Constitution. 
The president responds that he's got something called executive privilege, a right to keep at least some materials confidential, also not in the text of the Constitution. Both of these concepts, congressional investigations and executive privilege, have been recognized by the court, by the Supreme Court. And as you say, the Nixon uh, tapes case is the analogy, but the Nixon tapes case doesn't arise in a clash between Congress and the president, but between a criminal inquiry and the president. And in the Nixon tapes case, uh, the court says, yes, there is such a thing as executive privilege. The president does have some right to keep at least some materials, including uh, his consultations with his closest aides, confidential, but it must yield in the face of a criminal inquiry at least sometimes. And in a footnote, it says we're not addressing today congressional investigations. So the truth is we know very little about the legal status of congressional investigations. And my sense is that the Trump administration's point of view about all of this is going to be that it's not justiciable, it's not for the courts, that Congress has other tools if it's not happy with how the president is responding. The House, of course, is in charge of appropriations. Congress could uh, decline to confirm presidential appointees. Um, uh, Congress can impeach. Uh, And that the uh, the Constitution gives Congress uh, ways of addressing presidential recalcitrance uh, that suggest this is not for the courts to decide. I want to ask you about what some of those ways are uh, and follow up on further insights from your great recent piece in the New York Times reviewing these questions. Uh, Keith, first I want to ask uh, about historical analogs to clashes between Congress and the president. As Adam says, Nixon was between the court and the president. We do have some salient uh, Supreme Court decisions arising from the Teapot Dome scandal in 1927, which involved some congressional executive scuffles. But what are the nearest historical analogs for these congressional executive clashes, and what do they tell us about the current ones? Well, we've had them periodically. In the 19th century, they tended not to uh, be resolved in the courts, but instead were resolved um, between, in negotiations between uh, Congress um, and, and the White House. In the 20th century, it's been a little more common uh, for some of these disputes to uh, uh, wind their way um, into the court um, system, um, often not necessarily reaching the U.S. Supreme Court itself. Um And traditionally in the 19th century, uh, these battles were resolved in part by Congress using um, the kinds of tools that Adam just mentioned of threatening to uh, refuse to appropriate funds for president's uh, policy proposals, um, to refuse to pass the kind of legislation the president might want, uh, to refuse to confirm nominees that the president uh, might want. Um, So, for example, in the late uh, 19th century, um, there were a series of disputes between the U.S. Senate um, and the president over the ability of the president to uh, fire executive branch officials that um, senators didn't necessarily want um, to be fired. Um, They often um, threatened uh, the president to not uh, confirm uh, new nominees for those positions. And among the things they um, often demanded were access to the records um, by which the president was justifying his removal of the earlier um, officials and presidents would push back and say um, that those were covered by executive privilege, that um, it was inappropriate for the president to share uh, with the Senate um, the internal workings of the executive branch and the things that led him uh, to want to remove one official and uh, the things that led him uh, to want to appoint um, a new um, official. Um, And those disputes were ultimately resolved by the question of how far was the Senate willing to go to refuse to confirm new people um, to those positions, for example, and how far was the president willing to go um, to insist that he wasn't going to share um, records. And they often met somewhere in the middle and eventually uh, worked their way um, through those disputes. And, and there are lots of tools available for Congress in the current situation as well, besides going to court, uh, where they can try to work through these disputes currently. Adam, does that threat not to confirm officials still work uh, in an age when uh, the Senate is held by Republicans and is operating along strict party lines? And then talk about other enforcement powers that Congress has at its disposal. Your colleague, Charlie Savage, wrote a great explainer of the subpoena and the contempt fight between Trump and Congress, explaining what lawmakers can do if someone defies a subpoena, what the punishment is for contempt of Congress. Can Congress enforce a contempt citation on its own? What about going to court and so forth? Uh, Give give us a sense of the overview of Congress's enforcement uh, powers. So on the first point, my sense is that the framers envisioned uh, that members of Congress, both House and Senate, would have loyalty to their institutions as opposed to partisan loyalties or 
factional loyalties, and therefore Congress as a whole would work toward making sure that its power uh, would be respected by the presidency. As you point out, Jeff, in the current partisan climate where one party controls each House of Congress, that's not going to happen, and that means that the constitutional structure envisioned by the framers uh, may not work perfectly, and since the Senate, for instance, has the power to confirm or not presidential appointees uh, and is controlled by Republicans, that's not a power Congress is likely to exercise. Um, The House does have the appropriation power, though. It can withhold money, it can withhold salaries, and that's real power. Uh, But not every tool available to Congress will be used by this Congress because of the partisan divide. As far as what the House can do if the president refuses to uh, obey its subpoenas, there are you know four or five different roads that could go down. Uh, in theory, it could send the sergeant at arms uh, to detain the recalcitrant witness and uh, and hold him presumably in, in a room in the basement of the Capitol or someplace until the witness talks. That method has been used historically but hasn't been used since 1935 and I don't think it's likely. It could ask the Justice Department uh, to pursue criminal proceedings to enforce the subpoena. But, of course, the Justice Department, and this is not unique to the Trump administration, is not going to uh, go along with that when the subpoena is directed to an executive branch official. Uh, The House can go to court itself and has in earlier administrations. uh, Eric Holder, the Obama attorney general, was held in contempt. Uh, Harriet Myers the White House counsel, Josh Bolton, the chief of staff and the Bush administration were held in contempt and that gave rise to civil proceedings in the court which were protracted, uh, unsatisfactory, uh, led to some compromises but didn't result in definitive rulings. Uh, The fourth option is impeachment. Uh, Impeachment is uh, kind of a shorthand for a series of things. Uh, The House can open impeachment proceedings and issue subpoenas in connection with those, and those may be particularly powerful. It can actually impeach, which is to say accuse the president of misconduct, and then send those proceedings to the Senate, which would consider removal, but we're back to where we started a second ago. A Republican-controlled Senate is not going to impeach this president. And then finally, there's a political solution. Uh, We'll have an election in a couple years, and people can take account of all of this and make their own judgments. Keith, your thoughts on Congress's uh, contempt powers. I'll also uh, call out a good Constitution Daily post uh, the Constitution Center ran recently by our web editor, Scott Bomboy, noting a series of contempt powers detailed by the Congressional Research Service, uh, ranging from criminal contempt of Congress, a civil lawsuit brought by the House or Senate asking a House to enforce the subpoena, Congress's dormant inherent contempt power, And uh, it also talks about the history of contempt citations, uh, including in 1917 when the uh, U.S. attorney was cited for contempt because he used insulting language in a letter to Congress. So help fill in some of those details, the history of these contempt battles and what Congress's powers are. Uh, Yeah, the contempt power is um, uh, interesting in the modern uh, era in that we might have thought at one point that that partially holding people in contempt uh, would uh, shame government officials um, and and indicate uh, how unhappy uh, Congress was to the degree to which an executive branch official, for example, was misbehaving and and as a consequence try to uh, get them to be more accommodating um, just by uh, calling them out on it. Um, In our current um, highly partisan environment, um, it seems that people are pretty uh, willing to shrug off um, a contempt citation and not take it very uh, seriously. Uh, as something that um, uh, suggests that they're behaving uh, badly. Um, and as a consequence, then it's it's more significant in, in terms of how it gets the Congress into courts um, and to what degree can you bring the courts um, into play. Um, and, and mostly at the end of the day, that means can you uh, leverage the institutional prestige of the courts um, to weigh in in favor of, of Congress. Um, you can imagine an extreme situation where maybe the president uh, refuses uh, to comply with a judicial order as well, and that possibility 
um, is always um, hovering in the background. Um, but it certainly seems less likely that the president would uh, disobey a direct um, judicial order than the uh, president might be willing to uh, ignore um, a congressional subpoena um, calling for the production um, of some documents. And so um, part of what um, the contempt citation uh, allows Congress to do um, is to try to pull the courts into the dispute um, from their perspective, hopefully um, persuade the courts to weigh in uh, in favor of the congressional role here um, and try to push back against a, um intransigent executive. Well, you've mentioned the courts. Adam, let us turn our attention to the legal battles ahead. And they're really complicated and there are a lot of them. And they raise issues ranging from executive privilege to the scope of the subpoena power as defined by the Supreme Court in 1927 to be limited to inquiries with a legitimate uh, legislative purpose uh, to the status of grand jury material, 6E material in the redacted Mueller report. We're not going to cover all of these on these podcasts, but why don't you just take us forward over the next couple of months and identify uh, some of the main legal issues that the courts will confront as they evaluate whether or not the president has to comply with a myriad of congressional subpoenas. The central issue and the one that uh, President Trump's lawyers, both DOJ and private lawyers, have been pressing is that such investigative power as Congress has is limited to seeking information in aid of its legislative responsibilities. And they will say that, uh, say, seeking uh, President Trump's business records, uh, records from his accountants, records from his banks, don't fit with that power, that those are not legislative inquiries. Uh, They don't help Congress figure out what's wise, you know, accounting legislation or tax legislation or so on. The Supreme Court has defined the legislative power quite broadly. And I don't think we'll be particularly inclined to second-guess Congress's own conception of what fits within the legislative power. But that's a main battleground. Uh, Congress also sometimes uses the term oversight, which is broader than uh, seeking information uh, to help it legislate wisely. And the court has also indicated that Congress does have the power to supervise the executive and make sure there's no fraud and corruption. And a Teapot Dome case uh, certainly went along those lines. But in court the other day, President Trump's private lawyers said that that's not a a legitimate connection to the legislative power, that Congress can uh, investigate legislative agencies, but not the president himself. You mentioned the Teapot Dome case. It's it's come up a bit. This is the uh, Doherty case, McCrane and Doherty, a 1927 decision. Malley Doherty is the brother of former Attorney General Harry Doherty. I'm reading from Scott Bomboy's explainer. A select Senate committee issued a subpoena for him to testify and to give bank records. He refused to comply with the subpoena. The Senate issued a warrant and uh, took him into custody. He filed a habeas petition and the Supreme Court uh, upheld his conviction, holding that Congress has the power to compel witness testimony to obtain information in aid of the legislative function. Keith, can you give us any sense of where that distinction comes from, that the congressional power is limited to information in aid of the legislative function? And does the Constitution or the law tell us anything about how broadly the legislative function should be defined? Well, the starting point, again, is is this question of where the congressional investigative power comes from in the first place. And the Constitution doesn't explicitly say that uh, Congress has the authority to investigate. It doesn't say that Congress has authority to issue subpoenas um, or to compel uh, witnesses to testify or bring documents uh, to Congress. Um, all those things have been inferred from the constitutional structure and from the kinds of powers um, that Congress um, has more generally, um, as well as background principles of, of the nature of legislatures, including uh, British and colonial practice um, before um, the American case as well. And so then the question is, well, how big is that inference and and what is the scope of this power we're inferring? And if we're inferring that Congress has a power to engage in investigations, uh, presumably that derives from the fact that they have a power to pass legislation in the first place, um, as well as a few other um, more specific powers, including the impeachment power, uh, for example, which is not a power to legislate, but the empower to do something else, and you uh, may need to investigate um, as part of uh, pursuing uh, that particular power um, as well. Um, but of course, Congress's legislative authority is very broad. Um, what it means to um, gather documents and gather evidence that might help you eventually engage in 
uh, legislation um, is potentially uh, quite broad. Um, and courts have been very reluctant to want to weigh in to say um, that even though Congress has this broad legislative authority, um, this particular example of a hearing, of a witness, of a line of questioning um, has gone too far um, and isn't um, actually contributing to uh, Congress's constitutional authority um, to legislate. I think the principle is an important one um, to think that Congress does, in fact, have some limits here. Um, but identifying in practice uh, where those limits are and when Congress has crossed the bounds um, is hard in general, um, and courts are probably going to be very reluctant to uh, want to get to want to get involved in that. Adam, in your uh, recent piece, Clash Between Trump and House Democrats Poses Threat to Constitutional Order, you note that were the House to open impeachment proceedings against Mr. Trump, its right to gather information would be strengthened. Tell us what the legal consequences would be. Would it have to formally open impeachment proceedings or could it say that the information was being sought to help it inform its decision about whether to open impeachment proceedings and, and how would that change the legal landscape? So it seems to me that whatever the legislative power is, and you can argue about that, uh, in the context of impeachment proceedings, the House surely has the right to gather information. The House is in that setting sort of like a prosecutor. And a prosecutor doesn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to indict somebody. A prosecutor first investigates, gathers information, and moves only after persuading itself uh, that there is sufficient uh, evidence to warrant an accusation here against the president. So there's little question but that uh, information sought in aid of an impeachment, a potential impeachment, is well within uh, the House's power. Now, exactly when that right attaches, do they have to formally uh, open impeachment proceedings or, or do they have to merely say they're thinking about opening impeachment proceedings? There's really no law on that. But probably it's sufficient for them to say, so, you know, in good faith, we're looking at impeaching the president, we need to know whether we should. And subpoenas uh, issued in aid of that inquiry uh, would almost surely hold up in court. Uh, and, and, a, and a further point, something quite similar happened in the Nixon impeachment proceedings. Nixon, of course, uh, resigned before the proceedings got very far along. But one of the articles impeachment of one of the articles of impeachment against President Nixon was not only that he disobeyed a congressional subpoena, but that that subpoena was in aid of the impeachment inquiry. Thanks for that crucial point. And in the Nixon clash, a district court also ordered the disclosure of uh, 6E material, that is secret grand jury material, uh, on the grounds that it might be relevant to the enforcement of the law and to possible impeachment. Uh, given this reality, Keith, can you imagine uh, situations in which courts would say that Congress does not have the right to uh, subpoenaed information and, and what categories are those most likely to be? Well, I assume Congress would be careful enough not to uh, wind up in the position of, of having a court really call into question whether or not um, Congress has the authority to investigate things, especially under the impeachment power. Um, the impeachment power is so broad um, in being able to identify um, the need to gather information in order to know whether or not you ought to launch um, a formal um, impeachment inquiry um, gives the Congress a lot of flexibility um, on what to pursue um, uh, under that rubric. The the challenge, I guess, potentially would be if if the House were to um, cast the net so widely that they were trying to seek documents on something um, that you'd have a very hard time. Um, uh, thinking that uh, any results from that investigation would lead to something that could be characterized as a high crimes and misdemeanor. Um, and of course, the court is going to be very reluctant to want to uh, weigh in to actually give definition um, to what uh, constitutes impeachable offenses. Um, over a course of American history, the scope of impeachable offenses have also uh, been very uh, broad, but also um, vague um, on the margins. Um, but you can at least imagine a circumstance in which the House was so aggressive and were pursuing kinds of documents in which they argued that we need these documents, we need this testimony uh, for the sake of an impeachment inquiry. And the response is to say um, that the thing that you're looking at um, doesn't rise to the level of impeachable offense. And as a consequence, you're not entitled um, to these kinds of documents. So you could at least um, tee up that kind of dispute. Um, but again, I find it very hard to imagine courts would want to uh, get in the middle of that. 
Adam, can you imagine any of the currently subpoenaed information uh, being ruled by a court not to be discoverable by subpoena? That the tax returns, uh, for example, uh, could might that not be held to be relevant to a legislative purpose or not? Or are there any other subpoenas that you think might be most likely to be resisted in court? Uh, I think there's so many subpoenas in so many areas that you're likely going to mix of results. Uh, information about President Trump's private conduct as a business person before he became president is a little further away from the core legislative function, although, of course, uh, whether he's run afoul of the Constitution's emoluments clause, which forbids uh, taking money, at least in some circumstances, uh, from foreign entities, might make that stuff relevant. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, requests for his tax returns, which a statute seems to, by its plain terms, require the Treasury to turn over, would seem to be the kind of inquiry where courts are more likely to side with the House. But I would expect uh, you know, a, a range of different outcomes. I would hope, but I'm not confident, that it wouldn't turn on the party of the appointing district court judge. But it wouldn't surprise me totally to think that uh, judges appointed by, say, President Obama might be more sympathetic to the House's claims and judges appointed by, say, President Trump less so. But all that remains to be seen. Uh, Keith, is is this new? I'm, I'm hearing from both of you the idea that congressional presidential clashes historically were resolved more by accommodation and by political threat than by judges. More of these claims are now ending up in court, and Adam has just suggested that there might be a range of outcomes, possibly even based on the identity of the uh, of the judge and which president appointed him. Is, is, is that something new? And as a result, are we more likely to see the specter that you identified, the possibility of, of the president refusing to abide by a binding judicial order? Uh, this is somewhat new. I mean, as I said, we, we have been sort of creeping into this situation where courts have become more and more involved in these disputes. Um, both the Congress and the executive branch have been more willing to uh, try to uh, bring the courts um, into these disputes um, to um, help help resolve them. Um, and in our current situation, um, the House is uh, pursuing a wide uh, range of investigations. They're issuing an awful lot of subpoenas. And so as a consequence, there are a lot of very particular um, disputes that the president apparently is willing to um, uh, litigate out. Um, and so I would expect that uh, the White House is going to win some and lose some um, in these instances. Some, In some cases, the House um, uh, might be found to have uh, reached too far. Um, but there is a possibility that, that some of these cases might eventually make their way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, uh, the court would be asked to weigh in. Um, I think if the, uh, President Trump is counting on uh, the judges the, he has appointed to both the lower courts or the U.S. Supreme Court to, to uh, be on his side in all these disputes. Um, he is being overly confident. Um, uh, justices have, have surprised presidents in the past um, on these issues. It is true that uh, Republican-appointed justices and judges in general uh, tend to be more sympathetic to um, executive power claims um, in general. Um, and so it happens to be the case that a Republican president will be making executive power claims that Republican-appointed judges are likely to be more sympathetic to um, uh, than uh, some Democratic-appointed uh, judges might. Um, but even so, um, I think it's entirely possible that um, the White House will be too aggressive in its own litigation strategy and will find itself uh, losing um, some Republican-appointed judges along the way um, as, as well. Adam, Keith just raised the question of what might happen at the Supreme Court. Imagine that the tax case goes up to the Supreme Court and the justices are asked to decide whether the president has to turn over his tax returns according to the clear terms of the statute or whether it, there's no legitimate legislative purpose for the subpoena. Which way do you think the court would rule and do you think it would be a case of Republicans against uh, Democratic-appointed uh, justices or not? So I, first of all, Keith is quite right that as it happens – and this is really happenstance – the ordinary, the ordinary inclination of uh, the more conservative justices to be sympathetic to executive power might align them in that way even and, and look partisan even though this would be uh, the function of a pre-existing jurisprudential commitment. Um, I think that the court is in a tough spot already 
in terms of uh, its legitimacy and would try hard not to come out in a 5-4 decision in favor of a Republican president with all the Republican appointees on one side and all the Democratic appointees on the other side. Uh, It's conceivable to me, though, that at least some of the justices would achieve the result of ruling in favor of President Trump not on the merits but on the grounds that this is not a matter for the courts, uh, that Congress has other tools through which to enforce its requests for information and that the case is not justiciable. I, w- I would have thought something a little different had a, had a Mueller subpoena, in a criminal subpoena, reached the Supreme Court. I would have expected a lopsided uh, loss for President Trump. The congressional setting, because so novel, uh, makes it harder to predict. Very interesting. Keith, can you imagine a U.S. v. Nixon situation where a Supreme Court unanimously rules against uh, the president in his effort to resist a subpoena in order to defend the powers of Congress? And if so, what might that look like? Well, it's certainly hard for the court to uh, be unanimous these days on on important contentious issues in general. The justices have their own divisions, um, just like the rest of the political system um, has its divisions. But I do think the justices would uh, try very hard um, to build um, large majorities in, in weighing in on these uh, kinds of disputes uh, in particular. Um, I'm sure that they do not want to um, be handing down uh, 5-4 uh, decisions in favor of the president with the Republican appointed justices um, composing um, all the members of, of the majority. They'll be they'll be looking for other options uh, than than that, um, and and it may well be that they can find ways of uh, compromising among themselves and coming um, up with uh, particular legal strategies, including uh, focusing on the judiciability um, issue that would allow them to uh, come up with some more. Um, agreement uh, and build a, a broader coalition on the court. Um, I think it also just depends some on on what specific disputes uh, wind up um, uh, moving through the system and, and all the way um, up to the U.S. Supreme Court. There are certainly um, some of the things that um, Congress is likely to be pursuing and is pursuing now in hearings and testimony when Trump says um, we're going to resist all the subpoenas um, and has this sort of blanket refusal to cooperate with Congress. Uh, some of those things he's refusing are really very much within the core uh, competency of Congress. Um, and I think as a consequence, the administration is in a, uh, a difficult legal position to try to defend um, the claim that uh, hearings and, and testimony and documents um, that are right squarely within the scope of uh, congressional authority to uh, potentially legislate or in a potential impeachment inquiry uh, nonetheless uh, cannot be reached by Congress. I think the court's likely not to look very favorably um, on those kinds of claims. Um, so my assumption is the White House at the end of the day will wind up having to back off um, of some of the um, uh, more extreme uh, rhetorical uh, moves the president himself um, has made um, and, and so uh, to, put, to put themselves in a better legal position. Adam, you didn't write the headline perhaps, but clash between Trump and House Democrats poses threat to constitutional order if you're going to game this out about a year forward and if you're both correct that ultimately we will not see a situation of the president refusing to abide by a valid order from the Supreme Court, which would be a constitutional crisis according to Keith's initial definition. Um, how, How will this end up? Will the clock run out? Some judges will rule for the president, some against. The Supreme Court will kind of try to avoid a big clash and then we'll have the election? Or is there likely to be a significant legal battle that could, again, resurrect talks of serious constitutional clash, if not constitutional crisis? So I think both roads are available. Uh, Keith is right that uh, we may not want to take President Trump at his word uh, in a you know, in an offhand comment, and that there are aides uh, who are alert to the constitutional issues and will try to find middle ground and accommodation, and some of these things may go away. But it's also entirely possible to conceive of a fast-track litigation where, say, a district court judge in Washington orders the disclosure of, say, accounting records, refuses to stay that decision. Uh, That rockets up to the D.C. Circuit, 
they refused to stay the decision. And in a matter of weeks, the Supreme Court, in, in that preliminary context on an emergency application, which is not where they tend to do their best work, has to decide whether they're going to block or not as the litigation proceeds the order requiring disclosure of information. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that the Supreme Court would at least have to make a preliminary ruling in such a case. And, uh, you know, where that leads is hard to tell. Keith, can you imagine a scenario where something like your type 2 category, the president refusing to obey a valid legal order occurs and we do come close to a constitutional crisis? Of course, so that's been a persistent fear with uh, President Trump, um, and and there's some reason I think to um, have that fear. Um, uh, President Trump is unusual in his own um, attitudes toward uh, the courts. He's been uh, particularly um, aggressive in his uh, rhetoric about the courts. He uh, revels in uh, breaking with traditional norms and practices. Often doesn't understand um, those norms and practices very well. Um, in the first place, as some he breaks on accident and some he breaks um, on purpose. Um, and so you can imagine a President Trump being willing to um, take that step in ways that um, other more traditional presidents um, simply uh, wouldn't. Um, Trump also has less of a long-term investment, I think, in either the Republican Party um, or the workings of the American political and constitutional system um, than traditional presidents uh, would. Um, so it's a little harder to appeal to his uh, long-term interest. And for him, everything is going to be about his short-term uh, personal interests. Um, and so while the president himself, I think, might be more likely to be willing to have that kind of fight than um, – most presidents traditionally uh, would be willing to do, then the question is um, how many people are willing to have that fight with him? Um, are uh, Republican allies um, in Congress, um, in uh, the executive branch itself, um, in the larger political arena, uh, willing to rally around the president um, if he takes that kind of extreme uh, step? Um, and my inclination has been to think that they wouldn't, um, that uh, Republicans have uh, a longer-term stake um, in the workings of the system um, such that they are, are not as willing as the president to uh, break with some of these uh, fundamentals. Um, but it's hard to tell. Um, and I have to admit the Republicans uh, in general have uh, been more willing to be supportive of the president in more contexts um, than I might have expected going in. And, and Adam, how, how about you? Can you imagine a type two crisis of the president in some circumstances refusing to obey a valid court order? And what might that look like? I guess I guess I'm not ready to think that. Um, in in all in almost every case, I mean there are examples in American history, but in almost every case, and certainly currently, the basic idea that when the Supreme Court speaks, people do what it says, uh, held true in the Nixon tapes case, held true in Bush v. Gore. I always think of Justice Breyer, who was in dissent in Bush v. Gore walking around telling this story. He says, isn't it great that the morning after Bush v. Gore, which I thought was a terrible decision, and I was in dissent, there weren't riots in the streets. People obeyed what the Supreme Court said because the Supreme Court's reservoir of legitimacy is so large and uh, that people simply do what it says and the alternative would be to turn us into, and this is, I'm not now quoting Justice Breyer, this is me talking. The alternative would be to turn us into a kind of banana republic. And I don't see, you know, even in these extreme political times, I don't see us going there. That is to say, I would expect President Trump to uh, abide by uh, a, a Supreme Court decision requiring the disclosure of information. Well, let's turn to Keith's type one crisis, the operational crisis, which arises when important political disputes cannot be resolved within the existing constitutional framework. Given the ramping up of the judicialization of the clash between Congress and the president, Keith, can you imagine a situation where a type one operational crisis would arise? Well, you can imagine, for example, if the way the court wanted to resolve this issue is to say this is not judiciable and at the end of the day, Congress has its own tools to try to 
um, extract information from the White House um, and, and should do it on its own uh, without the courts intervening, um, then you're leaving the executive and the legislative branches to their own devices to uh, find a way through um, this particular situation. And um, uh, you can imagine them coming to an impasse and, and not willing to uh, budge very much uh, and, and, and compromise on this particular issue. Um, and, and, and then the question is, well, what happens next? I, I think that the, uh, it depends a little bit on, on what the particulars of the dispute turn out to be as to how significant um, that impasse um, actually is. Um, to what degree does it really stymie the ability of Congress um, to engage in the oversight and engage in the other activities that it needs to engage in? Um, not every time the Congress can't access information does that mean um, that's not capable of doing its job. Um, but in the end of the day, Congress has the big trump card, which is the ability to impeach the president or impeach other executive branch officials um, if they are completely unhappy um, with uh, the extent to which uh, the administration is stonewalling them um, on some of these um, issues. Um, and it's possible we could get to a point where um, uh, they would play that trump card and and the Constitution is designed to allow them to play that trump card. Um, so, so I think one way in which you um, avoid the possibility of a crisis is by using the constitutional tools you have available to you. Um, and among those constitutional tools um, is the ability to uh, impeach executive branch officials. Adam, same question to you. Could you imagine a type one operational crisis arise? And do you agree with Keith or not that if the Congress and the president are at an impasse, the courts refuse to intervene, Congress can't enforce its subpoenas, do, do you agree that the possibility of impeachment would always be a safety valve that would basically avoid or diffuse the operational constitutional crisis or not? I think uh, Keith's analysis is spot on. Uh, the Constitution does grant Congress, which after all is established in Article One in the Constitution, uh, vast powers uh, to control the president, including by impeachment. And while an impasse could result in all kinds of mischief. At the end of the day, if both houses of Congress were ready to move against the president, uh, there's little doubt that they could. There's no doubt that they could. Uh, we could imagine yet another constitutional crisis, which is a president who once impeached and removed by the senator refused to go. Uh, but then again, we're, we're into very deep waters. The president who once impeached refused to go would absolutely be a. a, a we we not, can agree that's a constitutional a, a, crisis. No, no question about it. Completely unprecedented in American history. Uh, Keith, what do you, what do you make of that? Is you know is that a possibility or is there anything that approaches it? And also, what 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 if the situation you describe occurs, and the House impeaches and the Senate refuses to convict? Uh, Democrats would cry constitutional crisis, saying that. Congress's powers were left unenforced, would that actually be a constitutional crisis or would a failed impeachment also be a safety valve that would defuse it? Uh, I think we'd certainly have those cries. I, I think they'd be mistaken. Um, that at the end of the day, that the Senate's ability to um, have a trial on an, on articles of impeachment and come to a judgment um, is also part of that constitutional uh, process. And, and, and uh, these these disputes resolve themselves um, through moving through those processes, including possibility of acquitting the president uh, in a Senate trial, and then ultimately through elections. Um, and the people will eventually uh, weigh in as well and either allow this uh, impasse to continue by continuing to put into power um, uh, uh, different parties who continue to disagree um, or by resolving it by uh, removing one of the two parties and, and uh, giving somebody uh, complete control. Um, I think the other thing, though, that you would expect to see in, in the, that kind of circumstance is that people will start crying constitutional crisis um, because of the impeachment itself. And we saw that uh, during the Clinton impeachment um, where people said it was a, a constitutional crisis that we were thinking about uh, impeaching a president. Uh, president Trump himself um, uh, on the campaign trail um, uh, threatened that if Hillary Clinton was elected president, it would be a constitutional crisis because uh, she would find herself um, under investigation and possibly being impeached. Um, and I think one thing that's crucial is that we uh, try to emphasize that um, 
the mere use of those constitutional tools um, is not a crisis. That they may be unfamiliar. Um, certainly, um, they uh, make uh, life difficult, um, politically uh, speaking. Um, but Congress has these tools, and they should be able to use them in appropriate circumstances uh, without us assuming that, therefore, the system is breaking down um, just because uh, we, we find ourselves needing to think about um, the possibility of impeaching somebody. Yes, people do tend to cry constitutional crises at times of impeachment. I am abashed to note from my prep here that I wrote a piece in 1998 during the Clinton impeachment for the New Republic called A Constitutional Crisis. And uh, I think that that was, a, in that was wrong. Uh, I've learned from both of you. Impeachment itself is not a constitutional crisis. But Adam, do you agree with Keith that basically as long as the impeachment safety valve exists, that constitutional crises can always be averted and you really do need blood in the streets as in the Revolutionary War and Civil War to have a genuine constitutional crisis or if the scenario we've described occurred short of the president refusing to leave office, if, if there is an impeachment, even a failed impeachment, can, can you imagine any scenario that would be a constitutional crisis? So, you know, crisis is not binary. Crisis is as someone um, said to me in connection with one of the articles I wrote, it's not like a cliff you fall off of. It's a slope you go down. And you can imagine, and let me talk about a slightly different context. We're now at a point where if a, a party other a party different from the president's party controls the Senate, it's quite easy to imagine that there will be no Supreme Court nominees confirmed. The people are so angry over the Merrick Garland episode uh, that it's possible that the Supreme Court would gradually drivel away and that we'd have fewer and fewer justices. And at some point, that's got to be a crisis. So there are ways that the government needs to function that if nobody is cooperating with anybody about anything, you will at some point wake up one day and say, uh, you know, I don't know what a crisis is exactly, but it's this. In general, though, uh, impeachment is a powerful tool and even if the Senate does not convict and remove, it could be a powerful political teaching moment. It would uh, present all of the evidence, not only to the senators, but to the American public. And whatever the Senate uh, decides, the American public can make a judgment in the next election. Thanks for that great, great example of a possible case where the Senate simply refused to confirm Supreme Court appointees. Keith, do you agree that that would be an operational crisis in the sense of a political dispute that can't be resolved within the existing constitutional framework? And could other examples uh, such as court packing by a future Democratic president and Congress uh, constitute a constitutional uh, operational crisis or not? I think that's right, that that, that, that kind of example um, of, of uh, having the Supreme Court dwindling away because we simply uh, can't manage to confirm any new justices um, is, is indicative of the kind of problem that you have embedded um, in a presidential system where you need uh, the possibility of Senate uh, confirmation in order to um, place people in offices. And as a consequence, there is a possibility um, of uh, severe and persistent uh, gridlock. Um, the Chief Justice at one point uh, referred to uh, the lower courts as being in a vacancy crisis. Um, I think he even used the language of constitutional crisis at one point because there were so many vacancies um, on the lower courts because the Senate and the president um, – uh, couldn't agree. Um, we've we've worked our way out of that in part by having a Senate and the president of the same party and by changing some Senate rules to make it a more majoritarian institution so it can move uh, nominees uh, forward. Um, but I think it's easily imaginable um, it, to have a, a future Senate um, of a different party um, uh, than the president, uh, not only refusing to confirm Supreme Court justices, but also refusing to confirm any lower court justices. Um, and again, having vacancies pile up in a way that actually interferes with the ability of the judiciary um, to do its job. Um, you can imagine similar things happening in the executive branch um, in um, staffing the executive branch such that the government grinds to a halt um, uh, and becomes uh, ineffectual because of the inability to staff up the executive branch. But you can also imagine it happening in the budgetary process of just a persistent government shutdown um, in which the president and Congress are unwilling to compromise on budgetary priorities um, and as a consequence can't manage to keep the government open um, in general. Um, generally speaking, those 
outcomes are so severe and nobody wants them that as a consequence, uh, people eventually uh, find ways of negotiating out of those problems and, and finding some compromises in order to move uh, forward. Um, but, but we have seen examples recently where the partisan divide is just so severe um, that uh, people are willing to take uh, relatively extreme steps um, rather than uh, make the kind of compromises that allow the government to, uh, to, move, to move forward. This is really helpful. We've identified uh, an actual scenario of constitutional crisis. You've both said that the government grinding to a halt because the Senate refuses to confirm judges or executive officials or Congress to pass a budget might be a crisis. Um, Adam, I'll I'll just close with a question about court packing. If, If in the future the Democrats take the White House and Congress and try to increase the size of the court to 13 justices, as several presidential candidates are talking about, uh, would that be a constitutional crisis or not? No, the Constitution uh, doesn't set the number of justices. That's set legislatively, and uh, the number of justices on the court has gone up and down over history. Uh, As you guys both know, of course, when FDR tried to pack the court, that was very unpopular with the public, and I imagine the public would not be very receptive to a court packing plan. Uh, But that's a a political, not a constitutional question, really. It strikes me as a little odd that Democrats are running around saying we should increase the size of the court. I wonder whether Republicans don't wake up one morning and say, okay, sure, let's do it, while they're in power. It might be an argument better made when you yourselves are in power. Hmm. Uh, Keith, your thoughts on whether court packing is a constitutional crisis? And then uh, I'll ask for your closing thoughts about uh, the scenario about what the future grinding to a halt constitutional crisis could possibly look like and how likely we are to see it. Well, changing the size of the court is within the uh, constitutional powers of uh, Congress to do, and they have done it in the past and could do it again uh, in the future. Um, And so uh, I think that the the mere fact of – uh, thinking about adding uh, judges to a court um, shouldn't be regarded as a constitutional crisis itself. Um, what concerns me, I think, though, about those proposals and the, the thing that's worrisome in the background um, is is what the goal is that you're pursuing by um, uh, trying to uh, pack the court in that way and, and alter it. And I think the the worry is that it's um, uh, basically a legislative version of what we've already been uh, talking about with uh, the president, um, uh, which is the possibility of a president simply defying a court order and refusing to comply uh, with uh, what the court says. You you worry about the institutional integrity of the court under those circumstances, and you also wonder you worry about. Um, the underlying commitment to adhere to constitutional rules um, uh, when presidents are, are willing to um, make those kinds of statements. And the same thing applies then in, in the congressional context of thinking about court packing. If really what you're trying to do is say, well, there's a set of constitutional rules I'm not willing to comply with um, and – uh, the way I'm going to avoid um, having to comply with those rules is by packing the court uh, full of people willing to just uh, declare those rules no longer operative. Um, then then you do have a crisis of a different um, uh, sort um, because the ultimate dispute is about um, the substantive commitments to the Constitution and whether or not we're willing um, to live up to them or not. Adam, your closing thoughts about what a possible future constitutional crisis might look like? Well, we've sketched out what some of the worst case scenarios are, but I guess I have to be hopeful. Uh, Our constitution is the uh, oldest uh, national constitution in force in the world. It served us well, and although people seem uh, hell-bent to test it, I suspect it's resilient enough to handle uh, the foreseeable crises uh, and will people will find a way within the constitutional structure to resolve their differences. Keith, the last word for you. You ended with a possible scenario where court packing could be motivated by a disinclination to obey the rule of law. Is that a new category of constitutional crisis or does it fit within your existing ones and and how optimistic or pessimistic are you that it might occur? Well, I want to be relatively um, optimistic. I do think there are some worrisome tendencies in our current um, political culture, um, in part connected to partisan polarization, that we uh, just so distrust the other side um, that 
and, and we so dislike uh, the things that they are trying to um, do uh, that we're unwilling to compromise and maybe eventually are unwilling to even play by the uh, traditional rules um, because we're just not willing to let the other side uh, win anything. Um, and and ultimately, constitutions are designed to try to get people to cooperate, um, try to get people to play by the rules and, and to uh, come to some uh, compromises. Um, and the constitutional system will break down if, if we're not ever willing um, uh, to do that. Um, I think the the optimistic hope is that we have found our way through um, very deep divisions uh, in the past and at times when we have had uh, very fundamental disagreements about uh, what the future of the country ought to look like and there was a lot of distrust um, uh, with the other side and yet um, despite that distrust, despite those disagreements, um, people found ways to uh, compromise, to come to agreements um, and, and understood that their long-term interest uh, was invested uh, in maintaining the constitutional system. And, and I think that will win out um, uh, in the present uh, situation as well, that uh, despite uh, the distrust, um, despite the disagreements, um, that both on both sides of the aisle, um, there will be uh, people who recognize that their long-term interest um, is to sustain uh, the constitutional framework um, and not let things get pushed too far. The constitutional system will break down if we're not able to compromise. Thank you so much, uh, Keith Whittington and Adam Liptak, for a truly illuminating and nuanced and clarifying discussion of what a constitutional crisis might look like. And thank you both also for your guarded optimism that we may avoid the abyss. Keith, Adam, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone who is hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And always remember, dear We The People friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the dedication to lifelong learning of people like you who are taking the time to listen to this show and educate yourself about the best arguments on all sides of our constitutional debate. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.